Hi there, and welcome to episode 19 of The Game Pit. This is another one of our pit fight episodes, and we're going to be throwing some Dungeons & Dragons board games into the pit. So recently there's been a release of five or so Dungeons & Dragons games which have come out, and we're going to be looking at our own background in Dungeons & Dragons briefly, looking at what does a Dungeons & Dragons game mean to us, then we're just going to quickly go over the five releases that have come out, those being Dungeon, the Castle Ravenloft games, Conquest of Nerath, Dungeon Command, and Lords of Waterdeep. Then what we're going to do is we're going to compare those five games to a list of requirements we've come up with for the ideal Dungeons & Dragons game to us. And also we're going to throw in some alternatives that are not Dungeons & Dragons licensed, but we think may well fit the bill. And at the end of the episode, we are going to try and work out between us which is our favourite of these five new releases in the Dungeons & Dragons board game line. Of course, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network, and you can catch us there with everything that's good about gaming podcasts. We're also on 2d6.org, and you can catch us there with a whole host of gaming goodness. So before we launch into start to talk about these new Dungeons & Dragons board games, we thought we'd just give you a brief idea about what our background is with regards to Dungeons & Dragons and the various media in which Dungeons & Dragons has shown itself over the years. First and foremost, where it all started, of course, is in the role-playing game. So Sean, what's your background in the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game? To be honest, Ryan, it's not a huge amount. I played a couple of role-playing games back in the day with your good self but never really really got into it to a degree where i could actually remember what i played and uh, definitely didn't play a lot of role-playing games yeah i mean it was always around me my older brother played dungeons and dragons all the the books and everything were in the house i used to sit there like reading through monster manual and uh, deities and demigods i spent a lot of time just designing dungeons for some reason i played a few a few goes of it, a few scenarios here and there. As a younger teenager, I tried to drag a few of my friends into it. And then I think as I got a bit older, I discovered rugby and uh, other diversions and it kind of went out the window a bit. And I think that what shows for us is that we both kind of feel like we know D&D and we've got a background in it. But actually, in terms of the role-playing game, it's quite shallow what we've done. It's that D&D has got to reach beyond just that role-playing game. I mean, for example, we're talking about the board games here. So where do you think in other areas sort of D&D has made that reach out that we can talk about how it's affected our enjoyment and our use in different medium? Well... One of the obvious ones for me, Ronan, is going to be computer games. Now, we were both heavily into our sort of Amiga games and our Nintendos, what have you. Now, there's a couple of games that stood out above the rest. Now, I know you've got a, a bit of a list to go through, some real blasts from the past. But the two for me were really Baldur's Gate and a really earlier one, which was a sort of a dungeon crawler, Doom style game. That was Eye of the Beholder. You're talking about two cracking games there, Sean. <laughs> In my little chronological list here, I'm going to take you back to I think, the first one I can remember us playing, and that is the Forgotten Realms one. It was originally out in 1988. Can you remember Pool of Radiance? Oh, gosh. See, now, Ronan actually wouldn't tell me the name of these before because he wanted my reaction. Oh, I really can. It came with a massive manual. It was just 
tiny little pixels on the screen and we absolutely <laughs> loved it. We actually we... got, I checked out, it came out first of all on PCs, but we must have got the re-release on the Amiga or something because it wasn't 1988 we bought this, there's no way. I think it probably did come out on the Amiga or something, maybe the Sega or something. <laughs> it came out on one of the many systems that we owned between us. One of the many horrible, horrible computer games we put hours into and there's a few more of those coming up. Next one we went to, yeah, you said it, 1990 Eye of the Beholder. It was technologically revolutionary. It gave you a 3D thing where you walked through the dungeon. You could look in three or four different directions. It was, that really was amazing. That was the pinnacle of gaming at the time. Yeah, it was probably the first time I ever really sort of felt really in a dungeon. And you, you had that sort of tense moments where you're creeping around corners and is there going to be a skeleton or a thug or actually a beholder which always scared uh, us quite a lot when that beholder floated up to us it's embarrassing to see a screenshot of those beholders now given the reaction we <laughs> make to them alright I'm going to go to one uh, this is 1992 it was on the Mega Drive I'm not sure if you played it but I remember being ill and having a couple of weeks off school and my mum went and hired this for me it was Warriors of the Eternal Sun I remember you playing it. I never really got into it myself. I remember you trying to force me to play it and I wouldn't play it with you and you, you cried and went off and played it on your own. I think I finished it three times and given it was dozens and dozens of hours each to finish the game, I don't know, I got a little bit obsessed with that. That's a personal favourite. There's a gap here of about six years from us and these computer games. I think, again, it kind of links into that time of, of rugby and other diversions. But 1998, coming back strong, the Baldur's Gate games, one and two. Ah, uh, the amount of time I sunk into those. And I've recently bought the remastered version <laughs> of Steam. So <laughs> Nice, nice. They are amazing they are so so good if you haven't ever played the Baldur's gate computer games you've got to give it a go it's amazing around the same time as those you've got planescape torment did you ever play much of that that was a real weird game and you had to go in different realms and you had a disembodied skull as your sort of companion you didn't know who you were you woke up you didn't know anything you had to find out who you were and what your story was no i didn't actually my wife actually played a lot of that but uh, I didn't. I felt like you kind of went one direction or the other, really. Baldur's Gate or Planescape. Yeah, I played it a little bit. I didn't that one that well. But this is one I'm pretty sure you played to death. I know I did. The Icewind Dale games. Yeah, they were the kind of the next step along. Once you'd once you'd finished with Baldur's Gate and played it to death, that was your next uh, Forgotten Realms D and D fix, wasn't it? Okay, and then the last two I think we've got any experience with 2002 Neverwinter Nights. Yeah, yeah, again, revolutionary, really in-depth. It was the first sort of real 3D world that you could explore this. And uh, did you ever play 2006 in the, the kind of heyday of MMOs, D&D Online? I didn't, know. Uh, I played it a little bit, but I was a bit too obsessed with City of Heroes. So anyway, that's kind of more of an idea of a lot of our backgrounds in um, computer games with D&D. Any other medium in which we enjoyed D&D, Sean? Uh, well, you know, we're both quite avid book readers and back in the day i think pretty much every book we owned was something around dungeons or fantasy and fighting monsters so i think we went through quite a lot of the dragon lance and forgotten realms books and i suppose 
the book series that really sort of hooked me on Dra- Dungeons and Dragons style was the Dra- Dragons of Autumn Twilight series. Uh, I think the, the Dragonlance Chronicles. Um, also, there was the Icewind Dale trilogy. We've talked about the computer game, but the actual Icewind Dale trilogy by R.A. Salvador was another one that really sort of dragged me into the D&D world. Yeah, you were always much more Forgotten Realms, man. Uh, I, I kind of stuck to Dragonlance a bit more. Are you brave enough to go back and read any of those books now, given the fond memories we've got of them? Yes. Ronan's saying this in the full, full knowledge that while doing my research of this, I had a little wave of nostalgia and I actually bought the compendium of the Icewind Dale trilogy. You enjoy them. I've still got the Dragonlance books on my bookshelf and I cannot bring myself to open them just in case. Do it. I'm a bit worried. Maybe I will. We'll see. Maybe I'm going to check them for content when my uh, my daughters are old enough to see whether they can read them or not. Well, of course. Well, the Icewind Dale trilogy is the first appearance of Drist, which is going to tie in nicely with one of the games we're talking about later. Yeah, he showed up in one of the Icewind Dale uh, computer games <clears> as well, I think. I believe he did, yes. He was quite, quite tasty, if I, <laughs> quite if I remember correctly. Right, and lastly... Have you got any experience at all in the older range of tabletop games? Because D&D games have come out in one form or another, basically since pretty much before D&D itself. I think the precursor to D&D was something, I think it was called Chainmail, I might be wrong here. But just before D&D came out, there was sort of a tabletop game, more of a skirmish game. And since then, there's been releases almost semi-regularly, some of dubious quality, some just released with magazines and what have you. Any experience with older D&D games? No, not really. I never actually played any of the old D&D board games or anything. Um, the closest, I suppose, we ever got was our mild obsession with Hero Quest in, in our time. Treasure Traps and Secret Doors. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> there, there are some cracking ones in this lineup. I'm gonna. I don't know how we missed the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons trivia game from 1991, which is. Oh man! No, purely on information found in the player's handbook, the Dungeon Master's handbook, and a couple of the monster manuals. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> it, was, it was a sad day when that slipped our grasp. Also, the Cluedo Dungeons and Dragons version from 2001. You're just making me sad. I'm <laughs> I'm going on eBay as we speak. <laughs> it was the cleric in the dragon's lair with the hand of Vecna. <laughs> but also, they've kind of been, now that they're, they're producing more modern style board games, they're also on the cutting edge of things like collectible card games. Dungeons and Dragons Spellfire was out as far back as 1994. And I'm going to put a personal shout out here for a real weird, obscure Dungeons and Dragons game. It was called Dragons of Glory. It was really strangely released. There was 12 Dragonlance modules released for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And most of them were scenarios you could play or adventures. And one of them was a Hex Encounter two-player war game, which was released as part of this series of scenarios. Anyway, it was called Dragons of Glory, and I spent hours as a child playing left hand against right hand at this two-player war game and when i was doing my research i came across it i I kind of my eyes popped out my head and i recognized it i was like that's the game i used to take up our dining room table for days on end with and left hand and right hand used to fall out all the time and they still do anyway that's our personal background in D. I think it's time for us to go on to what does dungeons and dragons mean to us Yeah, so as Ronan said, 
we're going to talk about seven aspects of Dungeons and Dragons, and they're the things that we together have come up with that make Dungeons and Dragons special to us, really. And I'm going to kick off with character development. Now, there's nothing uh, quite so geeky and, and to a, a younger Sean and a younger Ronan sitting on their computer games or what have you, developing a character. Now, do you choose a half-elf that's also got a bit of magic resistance? Are you an orc? Are you a dwarf that's going to be good with traps? I think that was a good part of the appeal for me, to be honest, was developing my own character, my own person who was going to go on these missions. I think a lot of it is in the, the sense of belonging of, of having a character that you've invested in and sort of been able to assume the personality so in the games we're going to be looking for that i think the next thing we come up with was a developing story in a true D game you don't want to know everything straight away you don't know everything that's going to happen you want there to be surprises along the way you want somehow and this could be one of the hardest things that you do in, in a proper board game but somehow your decisions to impact upon the story later on so that you really feel like you're immersed within a storyline, Sean. Yeah, definitely. I think if you know everything from the beginning, what's going to happen, you're going to go from A to B to C to D. It, it takes a little bit away from the adventure aspect of it, and it doesn't feel like a story arc anymore. So that's one of the big draws for us. And one of the next big draws, really, is exploration. You've got to be able to explore your surroundings. Now, Rona made a joke about treasure traps and secret doors in Hero Quest, but that was one of the things that really sort of opened our eyes is exploring and not knowing what's around the next corner i talked about a little bit i had a beholder it's just that intense moment part of the fun of D is the fun of dice rolling it's the i need a 12 to hit this monster or we're in trouble roll that d20 what do i get rolling for damage and that kind of luck aspect in it but in a game like D, you're rolling often enough that the luck isn't so so strong within it but that sort of tension of stand up dice roll moment Roll the dice, how do they fall, how's this gone for us, that little bit of luck element. It's important because, again, it's part of that of not knowing exactly what's going to happen, not everything being workoutable in these sort of games. Yeah, how much fun were you having in our game in Nerath the other day with your dice rolling? Oh, we're going there, are we? <laughs> <laughs> Me and Ronan have jointly got the worst dice in the history of dice rolling. Yeah, but like, like proven, proven not joint. <laughs> <laughs> Move on. Moving on. One of the aspects that we really enjoy about Dungeons & Dragons games is the teamwork aspect. The dungeon crawlers where you're all working together, the battle games where you're having to plan strategies together. I think it's a really important part of it. The ability of different characters with different ways and means of getting the job done, linking in together, trying to work out how you work best. It's one of the, the real big pulls for, for this sort of a game. And when that team is working together, quite often they're working together to fight monsters. And that's our next one. It's the fact that you don't know what these creatures are you're going to come across. You don't know what their strengths and weaknesses are. You might have to work out different tactics or have different equipment in order to be able to face them. And yeah, this probably is one of the geekiest one. But that whole thing of finding out what the next monster is around the corner, it's fun. Absolutely. There's such a massive variety of weird and wonderful monsters in the Dungeons and Dragons world, really. And speaking of world, next one, really, and the final one is probably the most important to me. I'm not sure where Ronan stands on it, but it's world immersion. I like to feel I'm part of that world. I'm in the dungeon. I'm 
plodding around this world fighting these monsters and that's the beauty of these old computer games that we used to and the books you just lose yourself in them what we've talked about there when we talk about the books and what have you we don't necessarily talk about specific books we talk about the different worlds that they've created for those books the forgotten realm scene and the Dragonlance scene and that is part of it that you feel like you know what's around you what the geography is what the background is what the history is and therefore it gives you a sense of place and a sense of, sort of worth to what you're doing so just a quick recap on those seven things we're going to be thinking about when we're assessing these games as Dungeons and Dragons games. That's character development, a developing story, the sense of exploration, the fun of dice rolling, the teamwork aspect, the fighting varied monsters and our immersion within the world of the game. So we're going to plunge into these five games and give you our overviews of them. And the very first one is the oldest one, but it did get re-released in 2012. That's Dungeon. It was originally designed in 1975 by... It's listed with seven different designers, but Gary Gygax is in there, one of the original designers of Dungeons & Dragons. So I guess that gives it some pedigree. It's for one to eight players. It's a dungeon crawler and it takes about 30 minutes. Now, it's a very simple game pairs down everything to do with dungeon crawling lets you get in there and play quickly the idea is you crawl around this dungeon and you're trying to collect a certain amount of treasure depending upon which character you've chosen at the beginning of the game and then escape back to the main hall in the center of the board with your treasure everyone starts and ends in that center hall and the rooms of the dungeon are spread out amongst corridors and they are color coded according to difficulty and there are six covers which represent six different levels of difficulty and the difficulty tells you how hard the monsters are to kill within the certain room and also how much treasure they're likely to have now there are four types of characters which you can choose at the beginning of the game there's two of each which leads to the eight player limit and they've got differing abilities and they've also got these different win conditions so for example the wizard he's best suited for attacking the monsters in the level five and six room so the harder monsters but he's the only one that comes with spells and he's got some slightly different abilities to him however he needs to collect 30,000 worth of treasure in order to win whereas if you go down the lower end to someone like the thief they're more suited to fight in the level one or two rooms which are probably slightly easier for them however they've only got to collect 10,000 worth of treasure to get out and win so it tries to balance and put some variety in like that which I think given the age of the game is not so bad each player on the turn can move up to five steps every player's got the same movement you then may enter a room that's not yet been cleared and in there you're going to encounter two cards one of them is going to have a trap or monster on and the other one is going to have a treasure on and if you get past the trap or defeat the monster you're going to be able to pick up that treasure and you're going to add that to your points there's also a possibility of losing treasures because when you get to that monster you have to fight them now each monster has got six different numbers along the bottom corresponding to an icon the icons are of the four different types of character fighter wizard cleric or thief and the other two are for the two types of spells which a wizard can use against a monster and the numbers down there tell you if you are using that spell or you're that type of character that's the number you have to roll on 2d6 in order to defeat it if you roll that number or higher you've defeated it you kill the monster you take the treasure as to your points and you carry on 
after that on your next turn. If, however, you don't manage to reach that level with a 2d6 roll, then the monster gets to strike back at you. Again, you roll 2d6, you consult a table, anything less than a 5 or equal to a 5 is a miss, nothing happens to you. And then as your roll gets higher, the worst things happen to you until if you roll a 12, you're dead. And you're going to have to start again with no treasure in the centre. That's as simple as it is. There's only one round of combat each turn. On the next turn, if you wish to continue fighting that monster, you stay in the room. If you wish to leave, you simply leave. That is the whole game. Wander around, encounter random monsters, try and get some treasure and try and get out before you get killed. Sean, you bought this for me and my family when it came out in 2012. What's your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, the reason I did buy it, and I think it was a group present rather than just for yourself, was I think it is geared towards the younger audience definitely i mean this game is it's really unbalanced it's got massive fortune swings but it's got that excitement factor it's quick and it really doesn't outstay its welcome because of that yeah i agree with you 100 if you're going to play a completely random dice fest like this then make it 30 minutes you know there are games that are three hours long that are probably as random as this are I don't see there's too much point in those. Dungeon gets right to the heart of it. Sure, it loses a lot of stuff in trying to be so simple, but also it gains in that, you know, it's a game I can sit down, I can play with very young children. They can understand it. They're just rolling two dice. That's the number you have to roll. Add them up. Okay, I did it or I didn't do it. Although they might get upset when they die. So, you know, be be careful of that. But it does what it sets out to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no depth to this, but it's not supposed to have any depth. It's just a very, very simple dungeon crawler. I mean, it's been redesigned, but it's very, very cheap and cheerful. I think it only costs between sort of 10 and 15 pounds or something like that. And the emphasis is just high, high on fun. And if you take it for anything more than that, you're not going to enjoy it. But if that's all you expect from this game, then that's what you will get is a bit of fun. The monster decks, it's actually quite possible to go through them and start again in one game. So there's not a massive amount of variety in it. But to play once in a while, do you know what? It does the job. I think we've both said enough about it. It's a competent release for sort of families with younger children. So after that, our next one up is what's officially called the Dungeons & Dragons Adventure System Games. Now, to us, we call it the Ravenloft series because Castle Ravenloft is the first of them, uh, followed by Wrath of a Shardalon and Legend of Drist. I think we're going to concentrate mostly with this description on Castle Ravenloft because it's the one of the three that me and Ronan have played the most. Published by Wizards of the Coast of course. Designed by Rob Heinsu, who did Night Eternal, set in the True Blood universe, infighting Peter Lee, who's also joined in on one of the other games we'll be talking about, but we'll move on. Uh, Mike Mills, who this is the only thing he's really done, and Bill Slavacek, who's done Dungeons & Dragons board game Diablo 2 edition, and he's done the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game starter set. It plays one to five in about 60 minutes, although I think myself and Ronan have found that it can go quite longer than that. And it's basically an adventure and exploration game set in the D&D world. It's a co-op played with miniatures with some dice rolling and a modular board. Also, just so everyone knows, all three of those games can be integrated together. So how do you play? You choose a character. Ravenloft offers a ranger, a rogue, a warrior, a cleric or a wizard. 
and you choose from a selection of at will daily and utility powers basically the at will power can be used any time and the daily and utility just once per game the players will also choose a scenario and this will determine what tiles from the board are used and what the goal of the game will be this time round. and once the game begins each turn has the following phases the hero phase if a player is down to zero hit points, then you must use a healing surge to recover. If you don't, and that player is dead, then the game is over. Then you decide if you are going to attack or perform an action and move. Move, then attack or do that action, or move twice. Players can also remove slow or immobilized tokens after their move attack phase. Any monsters killed earn a treasure card, and the monster cards are kept for experience points that are printed on them. So next up is the exploration phase. If on the edge of a tile, you draw a new tile and place it on the edge or edges that your character is standing on. Then a monster card is drawn and the monster is placed on a new tile. The next up and the last phase is the villain phase. Unless you drew a new tile with a white arrow on it, or for some reason your character isn't on the board, an encounter card must be drawn. An encounter means another monster spawning, a trap, or a nasty ongoing effect. Players can cancel encounters by spending five experience points, as I said, gained from killing those monsters earlier. Next up, the monster queue is activated, and the monsters drawn by that player will either move nearer to the heroes or attack if they're already close enough. Also, any monsters held by another player sharing the same name as the one in the current player's queue, they will activate too. So you don't want to have duplicates of monsters because they activate twice. Any heroes that are reduced to zero hit points, they are basically placed on their side and ignored by all monsters and traps. So that's the end of the villain phase. And also, just in the game, heroes can also level up should they throw a natural... 20 dice roll and spend five experience points this will allow a new daily power better stats etc uh, you gain treasures for killing monsters and these are going to give you items spells and equipment to help you in the quest so basically it's a dungeon crawler where you're all helping each other to achieve a certain target in the game ronan so the first thing i think about these is thinking back to when you first encountered them sean they do lack a bit of visual flair from what you'd really want from a D&D dungeon crawler. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing in that box at all, is there? It's just a load of cardboard. There's no nothing of any note at all. All right. The figures are nice. <laughs> but the cards and the tiles, I do mean it. The cards and the tiles are really, really plain. And when you're laying out the dungeon, it doesn't particularly look like a dungeon. It looks like a big grey bit of squares. Oh, first off, the figures are amazing. And I've never had a problem with the cards. I've actually always thought the tiles are actually quite nice. They're a bit on the samey side. Nothing really stands out unless it's one of the real end-of-level rooms. But even then, they, I suppose they are a bit the samey. But the cards are perfectly functional, designed well. You can get the information you need off them. I actually think it's quite a nicely designed game. No, I disagree. The cards are like prototype cards. It's just the text. Just no, I dis- and I tiles they don't add to the sense of atmosphere. I think that some people have a problem with the games in that they think they're too mathematical. It's too easy to work out. This is the most efficient thing to do, and I think that the lack of visual flair, especially in the tiles, adds to that. It takes away the flavour of what you're supposed to be doing. Again, 
I'm struggling to see what you're talking about here, Albin. I think it wonderful game with of exploration and teamwork and. Well, yeah, but that's gameplay. But coming back away from that, th- my criticism is when you lay that. If you just laid out that map, it would be without the figures on. It would be so boring. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. I, I get that the the map is a grid. It's, that's all it is, and there's nothing massively thematic or attractive in the artwork. It it can get a bit samey, but I think it's functional, and I think it does the job for me, really. Okay, and I say the other thing about it, right? That this is this is me being harsh. I'm going to come to the good points, right? You know, I like these games. Sometimes it does feel like bad things happen to you a lot, especially if you're getting lots of those encounters and out of the blue, you're getting knocked backwards. I think the look of the game with those grey drab tiles can make it a little bit depressing. When I play a dungeon crawler, and especially when you get the uh, backstory, which is quite good, you're in, is it Count Stoddard? You're delving into his dungeon and you're trying to stop him taking over the local countryside or whatever it is. I expect to be depressed i expect to be up against it i don't want a little jaunt a skip through the countryside heidi style with music playing and daffodils knocking against my knees i want a horrible gray dungeon and i want to feel that i'm being attacked from all angles and i want to feel up against it okay okay i agree with you i don't want to feel happy and jaunty <laughs> and multi kind of thing i also don't want to feel like i've gone into an accountant's dungeon and it's very square. I don't think it's that bad. I don't think it's that bad. It is a little bit samey, but start, I don't think I'll it's that bad. About this. I'll go on to the good things, all right? It's really simple to learn. Okay, you can crack into this after five minutes because there's not that many rules, but it does reward clever play. Just because it's very simple, I think we've done it ourselves. We've, we've approached situations within games or when we first started playing and gone, well, we'll just do what's obvious. When actually... You need to stop and think a bit about it. That simplicity doesn't take away from tactical depth. No, and I do think that it's probably the closest one of our games to actual role-playing. <gasps> no spoilers, dude. <laughs> it's a, a probably the closest game that I've played that, to actual role-playing so far. I think it's <laughs> it's on a very, very light scale. But it does give you decisions, and decisions do make a difference, which is a lot about what role-playing is about. And I feel you get that feel. I get that real D&D feel from this because because of that aspect. It does feel like you're playing part of a scenario from a role-playing game. Yeah, yeah. You've missed out the first bit, and you're doing the last bit. Yeah, yeah, on a very, very light scale and stripped right down. Yeah. Just a part of a scenario, like, yeah. And I wouldn't say stripped right down, rules-wise stripped down, but in terms of experience, there's still plenty to think about and plenty to do and, and a variety of monsters. So I agree with you, despite some worries about the fact that it looks like an accountant's dungeon I, I enjoy it i think you do need to cooperate to a certain degree within it it's not the greatest sort of cooperative system but you do have to cooperate to some degree you have to talk to each other and it's varied and it's good fun and it really is when if this first came out we weren't expecting much from a dungeons and dragons board game and this was the one that sort of started turning those expectations on the head somewhat my thoughts for it really are, I think they've got the difficulty balance right on this one. We have talked about it feeling like everything's against you, but 
I do think every mission is achievable. There is one mission in the Ravenloft game itself that is hideously long. I can't remember the actual layout of it, but you've got to collect loads and loads of different treasure or something, and it will actually take you like three or four hours, and it becomes tedious after an hour, hour and a half or so. Another really strong point for me is is the introduction in the later series, The Legend of Drist, of characters that we've talked about me enjoying the Forgotten Realms and the Icewind Dale trilogy. The characters from those books actually are in The Legend of Drist. So I get a bit of empathy with the characters all of a sudden. So even more like a role-playing game. I haven't designed these characters, but I do understand them and I do have an affinity with them. Yeah, I think there's a slight problem with this dress, though, is that the characters feel like uber. I think they, they had to make them kind of powerful because they were bringing these characters in and they're a little bit too great. Although the figures in Legends of Drift are amazing. They're incredible, massive. Actually, for me, I think Wrath of a Shardalon is the sweet spot in the series where they got everything right. They improved on some of the couple little fiddly bits in Castle Ravenloft, but didn't quite go to that power creep of Legend of Drift. Yeah, I think you're probably right for the reasons I just stated before. I do have a soft spot for Legend of Drist, and I've probably played Ravenloft the most, so I feel I know that game probably a little bit better. But I do think you're right. I think they've balanced out Wrath of a Shardalon the best, and it's probably the best gaming experience out of the three. So, Sean, would you want to summon up on the Ravenloft games for us? I just think they're very simple in terms of the rules. are really stripped down. Don't go into it thinking that you're going to get a two-hour in-depth strategy. But what you are going to get is an hour, an hour and a half of fun dungeon exploring where you do have to work together to achieve your goals. And there's a nice bit of dice rolling. As we mentioned before, there's monsters attacking. Two of the things that we really love about D&D. So the third game we're going to be talking about this week is Conquest of Nerath. It is a 2011 release, again, from Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro. The designers are Richard Baker, Mons Johnson and Peter Lee again. This is a two to four player war game set in the D&D world of Nerath. And it's all about four factions fighting over the land. It's a very simple war game with a ton of plastic figures to represent various units on the sides of the four factions and another whole ton of dice which you're going to use to resolve any combat within the game. Now, there's different ways of playing the game. You can play it in teams whereby players take on a faction each and they team up together or you can play it all in four on four or with three player you have so that one person plays two allied factions and the other two players play um, two allied factions separate to them the whole game is about fighting conquering territory and also there's a side sort of thing to it of exploring dungeons the four factions they've got names but they pretty much correspond to the undead Elves, Orcs and Humans, Standard Fantasy Fair. There's an asymmetric start in which some of the factions have got slightly bigger territory and also because in this game one faction always goes first, that's kind of the undead faction, they have a slight advantage as it goes around the board to the Elves and the Orcs and then finally the Humans. So therefore one of the ways in which this is balanced is that each faction has got a separate individual deck of event cards which they're going to be able to draw and use each turn 
but they all have pretty much the same units. Although they've got different sculpts for their figures, they all do exactly the same thing within game. There are nine types of units for each faction, and they range from the bottom from foot soldiers, which just roll a d6 in combat and have one hit point, as do all other units up to the mighty dragons and they roll a d20 in combat and are the only unit to have two hit points so you, they can take a bit more damage and help you out you're going to score points during the game by conquering other players areas you don't score any for reconquering areas you had at the beginning of the game but you've lost so therefore it very much encourages being on the offensive being on the attack also, when you explore dungeons, there's a possibility of getting treasures if you're successful, and they'll score your points. And a major way of scoring points is if you take someone else's capital city, everyone's got one of them on the board, you're going to score a whopping five points. Now, how long you play this for is dependent upon how many virtue points you play up to. You decide that beforehand, but 20 or 30, you're thinking around the right area. So taking five in one hit, that's pretty nice. Now, two types of units of those nine are heroes, and those are the ones that you're going to use to go into dungeons, as well as the possibility of using them within your armies, part of the warfare and the normal part of the game. Uh, if you wish to go into a dungeon, they're going to be guarded, and you flip over a guardian, and the guardians are going to be monsters from the D&D milieu, and the first time a dungeon gets conquered, there's going to be one monster in there, but th once that's happened, there's always going to be two, so there's kind of a side game there about... Do you send your heroes in and use your sort of recruitment uh, currency to get heroes to go after dungeons, or are you going to try and concentrate on the walls at the door and the wars and battles you are inevitably fighting every single turn? The turn consists of six phases. You draw an event card, resolve it if it's immediate or otherwise keep it in your hand. You then move all your troops, and the different units have got different amounts of movement, but no more than three in one go. Then anywhere you've moved into where there's opposition troops, you're going to have a fight. Each of the units has got a different polyhedral dice, which they roll. However, the thing to hit for all of them is a six so when you're fighting with foot soldiers they roll a d6 obviously a one in six chance of hitting you go up through the heroes roll d10s you've got monsters roll d12s and like i said the dragons they roll d20s so in theory 75 percent of their attacks should hit after you've resolved those fights you can then reposition your units like the dragons if they're flying around the place they can fly back to where they came from you then get to reinforce. Now, your reinforce is based upon how much land you held at the end of your last turn. Because every one space of land you hold on this map of the world gives you one gold in income. Reinforcement. So each of these units costs you a different amount of gold. And that's where one of the major decisions is. Do you spend your money on lots of cheap units? Do you buy some of the more expensive units? Do you get some heroes to try and take on dungeons? That's probably one of the longest ones along with movement where you're thinking right what's best to do for my empire now before we're about to get attacked on the next three turns before i get a chance to react again and finally you get income so like i said every one piece of land that you hold gets you one gold which you can spend on units sean that's how you play conquest of nerath any thoughts for us all right well let's start briefly with the look of the game the game looks nice but I think what makes it stand out and that extra care and attention have gone is each of the four armies have got their own individual heroes, their own individual monsters, their own individual dragons. I think there's a lot of care and attention gone into that. And they don't actually play in themselves differently. 
but the cards that you draw for each individual army actually does play differently and there are different types of cards and they have different strengths and weaknesses and i think that's really really interesting and something that is fun to explore Uh, yeah they do all play differently and i think Part of what makes them play differently is the asymmetric start there in that certain of the factions come under pressure at certain times and the way you have to react to what's going on ahead of you. If you're playing that undead that goes first, you get the chance to sort of mould almost the way the game's going to go, certainly initial stages. Whereas if you're sitting as those humans and you're going last, no, I think that's Nerath itself. You're very much more in a reactionary role where you're trying to scramble for a foothold, but stuff like those event cards, yours are more powerful than everyone else's. So you, while it looks like you might not be doing so well, eventually as those event cards come out more and more, you're going to be able to turn it on your head. You probably have to be a bit more opportunistic in certain factions and a bit more kind of domineering and bullying in other factions. Yeah, the teams that start off, I think it's the undead faction that starts off and it's just about getting in there, smashing things up, trying to gain territory. And the Narathian League themselves, the blue team, they uh, I've just got to stand there and watch their whole army just being wiped out before they get a go, especially... Well, in a four-player game, you don't even have the chance to play because it's the yellows and the blues versus the reds and the the black team. In a four-player team, you're the one player waiting for everyone to have their turn before you and basically destroy you. So that can be quite the uh, anticipation for your move and you really got to think about what you do for your go then. But Ronan, I've got a quick question for you. What is that yellow dragon? Are you still bitter? You chose that faction. (laughs) (laughs) What is he like? Uh, I really don't know. I think they just ran out of good ideas. Uh, Just use that one. That looks like a J-cloth. We'll just use that. (laughs) No one wants to be the yellow one. The elfin one. They go, rubbish dragon. (laughs) Okay. It looks like like a dead stingray. (laughs) Stingrays can be very dangerous, all right? Don't sleep on stingrays. Um, yeah, well, definitely also one of the decisions you have to make and while you're, you're talking there about where you're sitting there and you're thinking and you're waiting and seeing how other people go one of the big judgments here is how many risks to take because the game rewards aggression you, you're going to want to always be moving forward and taking new territory however, if you leave yourself undefended you're just leaving easy points for other people what's your thoughts about that the whole sort of balance on taking risks in the game? I think it's what makes the game, to be honest. You can't just rampage forward because you are going to leave massive gaps behind you. And, for instance, the monsters on each person's team can run amok. And they can basically, if you take an area and there's an empty space next to it, they're going to take that area too. They're just going to stomp into that area and that's free. So you've got to be really careful what areas you leave empty. Do you let people get too close to your home castle which if somebody takes your home city then that's going to get them five points in a 20 or 30 point game five points is absolutely massive so you've got to bear that in mind you've got to protect your castle you've got to make sure that you don't leave too many easy spaces to move into you've got to remember that there are sea units people can move their units by boat the elementals can move across sea and just take empty land spaces for nothing if they're just sitting there so so there's lots and lots to think about. It's not just a straight up risk with fantasy, for instance. 
it is silly fun. Let's not go too far. It is all about chucking monsters and elementals and dragons and then taking a whole handful of dice and chucking them down and seeing who wins. But you do have to play well. You do have to have strategy. If you just go haywire, like maybe I did just the other day, you are going to get picked apart and mistakes will be punished in the game. Yeah, it's not an in-depth war game by any stretch. It's a put a load of plastic miniatures on a board and smash the bejesus out of each other. That's what it is. It's, it's just a fun, but it has got that strategic element where it's not just a case of I might as well bowl forward and attack everything that moves. Uh, yeah, you've got to uh, get in the mood for it. Except you're going to be doing a bit of thinking, there's going to be some agonising decisions, but at the end of the day, you can't control everything, you just have to go for it and see what comes out in the shake-up. I've just got one more thing to say on this, the plastic insert on this game is the best plastic insert there's ever been in gaming, it is amazing, it does everything, it holds everything perfectly. That's my. <laughs> that's what I wanted to say. You're saying that in a show that's going to be talking about Lords of Waterdeep soon, are you sure? Yeah, it's much better than Water water Deep. There you go. Challenge thrown down. So, in a a 2012 release, our next game is Dungeon Command. Designed by Chris Dupuis. He's done Heroescape and Risk Legacy. Peter Lee again. We've talked about him. From the Nerath games. Kevin Tatro, he has just really done the Dungeon Command factions. And Rodney Thompson has also worked on it. This game is for two players, but there are variants out there that you can play with more players. I believe Ronan's seen people play four-player Dungeon Command at London on board. It plays about 90 minutes, which I think is about right. And it is a card-driven battle stroke skirmish game that's played out with miniatures on a modular board. Just some additional info for you. The Dungeon Command factions can also be used to expand the Ravenloft series. So there's a little bit of intertwining between the two D&D games there. So And they give you special cards to do this. So how do you play Dungeon Command? Each player is going to choose a faction. The five factions are the Heart of Cormir and the Sting of Loth, which were the first two to come out. And we have the Curse of Undead, the Blood of Gromsh, and the Tyranny of Goblins. Now, all of these play in slightly different ways, but we'll talk about that later. So, once you've chosen one of your factions, you're going to choose a commander. And your commander will have a starting morale value and a starting leadership value. The morale is the way to win and lose this game, really. As should one player get to zero morale, they will lose the game. And the main way to lose this morale is when your creatures are killed in battles. The leadership value dictates the strength of your creatures in play, and you can, as you can only play a creature or creatures with strength values totaling up to your current leadership. There is a stack of order cards that basically are a lot of the driving force behind the gameplay as they allow players to make extra special attacks, get defense and healing bonuses, foil attacks, and basically generally cause your opponent to threaten physical violence. Or maybe that's just what I play with Ronan. There is a stack of creature cards with one for every miniature in the box. These are going to detail the creature movements and attacks and what special things they can do and what order cards can be used to play with them. The game then begins the following turn phase. 
So you're going to start with refresh. You're going to draw an order card, resolve any start of a turn effects, and untap any creatures used to defend your opponent's attacks earlier. Activate. This is when all your creatures are activated on the board itself. You're going to move and attack, gather treasure, or cast spells. Whatever you want, as long as you have the ability to do so. Then we have deploy. You increase your leadership value by one, and then choose to deploy any creatures from your hand if you're able to. And finally is the cleanup. You resolve any end-of-turn effects, draw back up to your creature hand limit if you deployed any, and untap any creatures on there. So there's a little bit of exploring going on with treasures placed on the map as well. And these treasures are going to increase your morale. But these are just things just to keep the game going a little bit longer. I'm not really going to go into the finer details like movement, battle, spells, etc. But mostly this game is about using the different factions' unique abilities to hassle, harry, and bludgeon your opponent into submission. Now, Rhino, this is one of the games we've probably played more than the others. What are your thoughts? Well, one of the most important things about it, and something that is the real selling point for me on it, is... Each faction genuinely feels unique in Dungeon Command, and you generally have to play uniquely with them. So each different setup, each time there's two different factions against each other, you're having to rethink strategies, you're having to respond to what units you're being given. So it's a game that never gets samey. It's really successful in what it does. It does fancy combat without dice in a really clever way. And for me, really, it's a big success. Yeah, it was one of those where I kind of got it because it looked pretty. We've got like the war games and we haven't really got that sort of skirmish game where you're just pitting these creatures against each other. You're always an adventurer going into a dungeon and you never really get a chance to be the actual creatures themselves from D&D. So that, that was the appeal when I first bought it, but it actually turned out to be a really, really good game. I'd describe it probably as delightfully frustrating. It definitely there's a lot of tension in there. I think there's tension firstly because it's a it's a two player game, one on one game, and you're going to feel that, and it's direct combat. I also think that the card driven combat leads to that tension as well because with the dice you can kind of blame it on the dice sometimes, but somehow the cards, although they can be a surprise, they feel slightly fairer. It kind of feels like oh that was clever play, you timed that well, you waited, to, you know, you set me up. So I think that also has attention because you can't just sort of blame it on the luck of the dice. But there is a question I want to ask you, Sean, about Dungeon Command. Why not just play an actual minis game? The minis games tend to be a little bit more involved. This is just a, a quick slap first. Let's get in there, have a scrap in the middle of the board, and get out in 90 minutes. I think miniature games can go on for a lot longer than that. I think this does have the added bonus for me that it is set in the D&D world, and I do know the monsters from various other games, computer games, books, whatever. And when the owlbear does come up and you get that owlbear, you just get this thrill because you're putting an owlbear or a big dragon or something out there. Going back to what you said the cards are really important in this game because that that's the element of that's hidden from you we've talked about the cards being important in their as well because they drive but 
you're only using one card a, a, a go, really, because you're only picking up one card. On this one, you've got lots of cards. Nobody knows what cards you're holding in your hand, and you can set up traps, and you can lull people into false sense of securities, and you're one of your favourites playing with this thing of a lull faction where you're always countering everything I do, and it's nipping in, giving me a, a crack around the side of the face, and then nipping out again before I can get you. The cards lend themselves to the way Loth plays and that's one of the beauties of this game for me you never know quite what to expect from the other player absolutely and I think the other thing with it is that kind of tension build and the slow power creep within the game and that you start off with two three four units and then you become more powerful as the game goes on you can summon more creatures and there's an arc to it there's crescendo the fact that the game is building and building and building to the end i think that's an important part of it as well it feels to me like almost that there's a catch-up mechanism built into the game but it's it's not obvious, but we always end up where one of us is on two points and the other one gets killed. Or, or I think we've gone down to the wire where it literally is who gets that last punch in. And every game we've played, no matter what the faction, it's always come down to a really nail-biting, intense end where we're both scratching our head and trying to eke out the most we can of those last few precious monsters and cards we've got. It can't be the fact that we're that closely matched because we, we're not always looking that closely matched in things. It must be the game doing it, but it does it in, a, in such a way that it, it's quite charming. Yeah, I think there's kind of two things that lead to that are the fact that if you are dominant, you're going to be pushing into the other person's half of the board. Therefore, your reinforcements are going to take slightly longer to get there than their reinforcements. And it is a game of slight edges, for, for sure, which is why some of the cards are so important. I think the second thing on that is, if you get wiped out, you can come back in strength. You can come out with a whole fresh bunch of units, and you're ready to go again. And often... The player who scored those points by wiping out your units has got some damage on them. So you're bringing in a fresh team against a weary team. So you're going to be able to knock them down. And it's, it takes real clever play in order for the person to hang on who's got that initial edge. It's very hard to wipe the board immediately. I think that's part of the two balancing things that are in there. I am going to throw one sort of wish or slight criticism at you though, Sean, is that it's always faction against faction fight to the death as with some other games do you think that the addition of some scenarios would add to the game in that you know whether it be one faction has to escort someone out through the dungeon and you're trying to stop them or you're fighting over a particular area or what have you just something that slightly mixes it up now and then i think it could give a little bit more depth to the game but I think the beauty of this for me, and I've already said it, is the fact that you're just throwing these really cool monsters at each other. And it's one of the things I love is, or hate, depending on what's happening, is when you finally get that big, huge demon or dragon or or whatever you're going to throw out. And the other player's like, oh, God, I've just got rid of, like... Your, your undead warrior and you're throwing your undead dragon at me i just love that aspect of it now i suppose you could get that in a story scenario as well but i i like it as it is but i wouldn't object to a little bit of story in in there but i'm not sure how well it would work and one more thing i want to throw at you ronan is uh you love an umber hulk don't you yeah we did promise 
<laughs> I think actually that was one of the reasons I loved this game. Is that very, very first game that we played. We, I was the heart of Cormier and you were the sting of lol faction. And you were doing really, really well. And I managed to just put everything I had into this one Umber Hulk that stayed alive just long enough for me to, to, to kill Ronan off. It was beautiful. You did promise. Sorry, it had to be mentioned. <sighs> okay. I think they've been really successful here. I think it's a really fun, thematic, little skirmish game which lets you jump straight in without having to read a big tome or codex or whatever about all your units. You don't have to be getting out rulers to work out movement and range. It's all done for you on the grid board. And I really think this is a successful and underappreciated little game, Dungeon Command. Sean, what's your final thoughts on it? Yeah, under underappreciated, definitely. It doesn't really feature. You don't know... Like I don't know a lot of people that own this or have even heard of it. When I, when people ask me about, oh, what's this dungeon command you were talking about? I'm really quite shocked because it is a very, very good game and it's got that Dungeons & Dragons license on it. So it's a fun game. It's a tense game and it's just the thrill of bringing out these, these famous creatures from Dungeons & Dragons and putting them under your thrall is uh, what I, I love, that type of thing. So yeah, I, I really enjoy this. So the fifth and final game from this new wave of Dungeons & Dragons board games is possibly the most famous, most successful, and it's Lords of Waterdeep. It's from designers Peter Lee and Rodney Thompson. It was published in 2012 by Wizards of the Coast, and it's for two to five players, although with the relatively recent release of the expansion Scoundrels of Skullsport, you can now play with six players. The suggested playing time is 60 minutes. Now, as with all games, it's going to be slightly dependent on player count. I think with two players, you can get it done as quickly as 40, 45 minutes with six players, and especially with the expansion in, makes it a lot longer. But let's say an hour and a half for base game with five players. That's the max. Now, what sort of a game is it? If you're thinking D&D game, you probably wouldn't think worker placement, which is exactly what this is. Worker placement and resource conversion. Your resources, however, are adventurers, be they wizards, clerics, fighters or thieves, the kind of standard four types again. And you're also going to have to have a little bit of money coming in because you're going to use adventurers and money to fulfill quests. Quests are going to score you points or give you ongoing bonuses. Now, there are five different types of quests and each player gets a lord at the beginning of the game, one of the lords of Waterdeep. And most of them have got two of those types of quests on their character card and any of those quests of those two types you complete during the game is going to give you a bonus at the end. One of the lords is slightly different. There's ability to build buildings in the game, and I'll talk about how that works in a second, but that lord gives you a bonus for that. Again, in the expansion, you get a variety of other lords which give you points for various other things. Where are you going to be putting these workers? Well, the board is a map of Waterdeep itself, the city. The City of Splendours, in Sean's favourite Forgotten Realms uh, setting. 
And around the map are different areas of the city, mostly buildings, and they have places for your workers to go to, and they show you on the board what reward you're going to get to go there. So it might be going to the Field of Glory to recruit some fighters. It might be going down to the harbour in order to play an intrigue card. Uh, intrigue cards are one of the player interaction things within the game. Again, I'll talk about those in a sec. There's different areas to go to. You can go and get some money, or you can go and collect uh, a start player for the next turn, what have you. There's the ability within the game, however, to build buildings, which adds variety to the spaces. And the buildings are going to be different as they come out in every game. And there is one place in the city a player can place his agent, and that allows them to build a building, and it becomes theirs. Now, not only is that building available to all the players to go to for the rest of the game, but if they go there the owner of the building who's built it is going to get a reward. So each game develops slightly differently. The places you can go to are slightly different and the rewards you're going to get are slightly different. The entry cards I mentioned, they're another set of cards in the game. Now, entry cards, as well as the blocking aspect of all worker placement games, this is really where the interaction comes in. And when you go to the harbour, you get to immediately play an entry card. There are different types. They might give you reward. They might give you reward and another player reward. They might take something away from other players. They might give the other players a chance to give you something in order to score victory points. And there's also things called mandatory quests. Now, all players are trying to collect adventurers to suit the quest they've chosen from the inn. Of course, you go to an inn for quests. It's D&D. However, you can hit people with these mandatory quests, which means they cannot complete any other quests until they've done this. And they're only going to score a very small number of points for doing this. So it's a way of slowing other players down, possibly a way of catching the leader or at least the perceived leader. This goes on for eight rounds halfway through you're going to get an extra agent as there will be probably more buildings built on the board and at the end of the eight rounds everyone looks at the amount of points they've scored by completing quests they then reveal what lord they've had all the way through hidden and score the bonus points according to the quests or buildings they've built for that lord and whoever scored the most points wins the game it is a euro in dungeons and dragons clothing it has been highly successful and sean what do you think of it yeah, this one was really from left field in terms of all the other D&D releases that have ever been ever. To do a Euro game, just a little bit weird. Like, what the hell are they doing? Why would they even dip their toes in that water? But what came through was some people may, may think it was a little bit too simple what, what you get, but I think it was a mildly thematic success. I think it's a good game with a lot of interaction, and it's kind of... A gateway between the the Euro and the Ameritrash sort of thematic games, or possibly even a general gateway game. Yeah, absolutely. I think actually it's a fantastic gateway game. I really do. I think that the theme is familiar enough to most people that they're going to cop onto it straight away. Certainly more so than uh, you're a Genoan trader or we're out in sci-fi world. People get this that okay. I'm going on quests. They know what quests are. They know Lord of the Rings. They've seen the films, at least. And this just works. And not only it work, but it introduces people to genuine, modern gaming mechanisms. The victory point track. People forget. I forget sometimes that people don't know what a victory point track is. Worker placement is a classic for you there. Resource conversion. These are genuine mechanisms that you're introducing people to via a very, very quick to explain game. But it, it has got some tactical depth to it i wouldn't say it's strategic i would say any strategy in it definitely comes through from the expansion and even that is just a light smattering and then you can chain rewards together and certain buildings gives you a little bit more planning but 
a really a great gateway game and completely surprising as you said you know D worker placement game how the hell is that going to work yeah. I think it's you mentioned it in uh, your introduction to the game. It's it's a very interactive game because there's only a certain amount of places on that board and you're trying to get your pawns down onto the board and people are obviously going for the same thing as you quite often and then you've got those intrigue cards. I really like the Waterdeep Harbour aspect where you go to play your intrigue cards and the fact that you're almost wasting a pawn to play your intrigue cards but you get to play that pawn again. So that's an interesting place to go on the board and there's not a lot of downtime in this because people are always watching to see what other people are picking up. Are they going to pick up their quest? Are you always trying to work out what their hidden lord is, what they're going for? So I think, yeah, it's, it's a good game, a fun game, lots of interaction, and there's no, no real downtime for me. There's been a backlash against the game. It is massively popular. It's in the top 30 on Board Game Geek. But there's a lot of people who are a bit snooty about it. Now, Sean... It is a Euro with a very pasted on D&D theme, which I'm not sure really makes it a D&D game. But hey, if the makers of it say it's D&D, it's D&D. Why is there a backlash against this game for this theme as opposed to any other theme for a worker placement game? I think it's just because it's it's, uh, Wizards of the Coast or Dungeons and Dragons invading on Euro game territory, isn't it? And I suppose... There's not that much depth to it. It's fans of Euro games, I suppose I can see to a point where they're coming from. It is a pasted-on theme that there's no nothing really new for them in the game. But I just think with the expansion, the expansion's gone a little bit to address those criticisms of the game. It has introduced a little bit more depth. It's introduced another mechanic in the skulls that you've got to be aware of because you can't let too many skulls build up. So it brings definitely more depth through the game, as you said, not massive amount, but I think it has addressed to some degree what the critics were talking about. Don't think you're ever going to make them happy, to be honest. I think they just look at D and D and they get snooty and they say, "Oh, well, I'm not interested in playing that sort of game." For me, very good game in its own right. A game which I can get out play in one hour and have had, you know, a, a light, a light to medium even Euro game experience, something to relax and chill out. And I'm shallow enough to actually like the quest. The fact that you go and tame an owl bear or you're driving vampires out of a nest or what have you. Do you know what? Just those couple of lines of flavour text, that makes the game more enjoyable to me than delivering another vat of goose grease to Venice. Some people complain about the cube. They're not just colours. They represent warriors and clerics. So you can actually go... Someone on Board Game Geek does the D&D deeples, they're called. And there are actually little wooden meeples of the characters. So that lends a little bit more theme and a little bit more depth to that theme because you are sending a warrior out to do a warrior's quest. So, yeah, it is a fun game. It gets done in an hour, an hour and a half if you're really stretching it. And nothing to dislike for me. Okay, so we've run down the five Dungeons & Dragons games that have come out in the last couple of years. And before that, we went through those seven characteristics of a game which makes it our ideal Dungeons & Dragons game. What we're going to do now is, we looked at the five games that have come out, and we tried to find the one which best fit into each of those niches. But actually, as the discussion was going on and we were doing our research, 
there's an awful lot of games out there which are inspired by Dungeons and Dragons and the idea of fantasy roleplay and what have you, but they're not actually D&D licensed. But for us, they fit that role. So while we were talking about D&D games, we found that maybe just the D&D licensed ones don't cover the whole range of what needs to be discussed when you're considering this type of games. So for each of these seven niches, we're going to try and fit one of those five games into there as a best fit. But we're also between us going to come up with one game from outside these D&D branded games, which we think does the job that we would like to see in our ideal Dungeons and Dragons game. Now, I'm going to kick off. The first category we had was having character development. And I think we both really struggled with this one. We're looking to develop a character, level them up, customize them, make them unique. And, you know, the best I could come up with, Sean, was Dungeon Command. In that you get slightly more powerful as the battle goes on and therefore the makeup of your little tiny army there, your little troop, is going to develop somewhat and you're going to have more skills and more powers probably in your hand and you feel like you're getting more powerful as the battle goes on. Now, that's as good as I could do for a licensed Dungeons & Dragons game for character development. Could you do any better than me? No, I couldn't do anything at all, mate. I really scratched my head and it it was an eye-opener really because it is one of the things we most enjoy about D&D and to not be able to really comfortably fit any of those five games we talked about which are D&D games into this it it was yeah a definite eye-opener so I'm going to go with none I don't think any of them fit character development. I think that's probably a better answer than me trying to shoot on Dungeon Command, <laughs> isn't it? So, between us, we have come up with a game that we think kind of shows the way of how it can be done. And it might be probably an obvious one. I'm sure there's some people saying it out there. It is the Pathfinder Adventure card game. Now, this is a cooperative card game in which a party of between one and uh, six adventurers are going to be going through a series of scenarios and adventures. And... Each adventure is represented by a small deck of cards and that deck improves and takes on different aspects as you go through these scenarios. And also the characters develop more skills and better abilities and what have you. And absolutely one of the key selling points of the Pathfinder Adventure card game is that your characters develop and you take the same character all the way through this ongoing thing and they become more and more powerful. And for me and for us... That is the game which is kind of showing you how it can be done within this genre. Sean, do you want to take us on to the next characteristic? So, yeah, next up is developing the story. Again, it was a little bit of a stretch, but I think Ravenloft is the game where you you do go from scenario to scenario and you, you do get sort of more attuned with your character and the story that you are taking on Strahd and you're trying to get to the point where you come up to this climb climactic battle against Lord Strahd. So for me, the the best developing story is Castle Ravenloft series. Yes, I'm stretching again because there's no proper campaigns. None of these games you can chain something together and really immerse yourself. I actually went for Conquest of Nerath. In that, the story of the game develops within the game itself and the player's actions very much drive where the actions are going to take place, which of the zones on the board are going to become the critical fronts, where the critical battles are going to take place, 
and what kind of troops you need where and when. So just because it's so driven by the players, I, again, a little bit of a shoehorn, and I went for the story development because it's player-driven Conquest of Nereth. Mm, tenuous. Yeah, tenuous, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> the game that I think we kind of eventually agreed on that had the best developing story is the legends of andor and now this game if it didn't have the best developing story then it's not doing something right because it's all about the story it's an unfolding tale where whatever you do your characters cooperatively it affects the storyline it affects how the storyline plays out so this is all about the arc in the story so that's the one we've plumped for Okay, our next one was a sense of exploration. So we wanted to go and discover new worlds. You know, the sort of quest story is the standard fantasy fair, and it's the what's over the next hill, what's around the next corner, what are we going to find? Now, this is three in a row. I've struggled to find a good fit out of these D&D games for. But in the end, despite the horribly plain tiles, I did go for the Ravenloft series because at least you don't know exactly what's coming and there's going to be different things, different monsters, and you might get hit by an event. So you don't know what's around the corner. And every time you play the game, it's going to develop slightly differently. Yeah, I was thinking along the lines of the Ravenloft series, but I've plumped for Dungeon because that's all Dungeon really is, is a just, there's so many monsters, you're flicking through them really quickly. That's all it is, exploring rooms, exploring rooms, exploring rooms. So there is a strong exploration side to Dungeon. And Dungeon deserves some love because it's not a terrible game. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But for us, the non-D&D licensed game, which really shows exploration at its heart is Mage Knight. Now, Mage Knight is really a huge gaming system from Vladish Vattel. It can be played cooperatively or combatively. There's a number of different scenarios, but what pretty much all of them have in common is that you start in a small area and then you're going to be moving throughout the countryside. And as you go, you're going to discover different features, be they monasteries, wizard towers, villages, cities, marauding orcs marauding dragon kin wherever it might be it's all that exploration drives everything it's hard to do it's hard to balance your deck of cards it's a card driven game which movement is limited and where you go is very important and what you find there and what you decide to fight and that sense of exploration is really at the key of a real deep heavy involved fantasy game and that's mage knight by vladish so moving on to dice rolling, another really important aspect for us in a D&D games. And I struggled again. I think there is another game that does have a very strong dice rolling aspect to it. But I kind of like the dice rolling part of the Castle Ravenloft series. I like the fact that it is quite tense and the group is depending on you when you're rolling those dice. Can you kill that monster? Can you get it out of the way? So yeah, I'm going to go with the Ravenloft series. I go against you here. I think there's an obvious winner here, and it's the first one in the categories where I say, really, this game's got it right, and that is Conquest of Nereth. You can have battles with you know, a, a dozen units, and way more, on each side during a turn, and then in that case, you're picking up a dozen dice, all different sizes, the D4s, 6s, 8s, 10s, 12s, 20s that used to from D&D, and firing them down there. You don't have to resort to a chart or anything, you're just looking to see 6s and above a hit, but it's real fun, and when you're rubbish and you roll all 1s and 2s like me, or when you're jammy and roll all 6s on D6s like Sean, it's funny, and it really recreates that feeling of combat in D&D, so the fistful of dice using Nerath is the clear winner for me here. 
So the non-D&D game we've chosen is a game that we've got a lot of love for and it almost made the character development side and it almost made the developing story section, but it's made this and it's Descent, which is the game that pits one player against a group of adventures. And the dice rolling that we love about Descent is the fact that you are up against somebody you are up against that overlord character and it's very tense when you're both rolling together and you both need to get that clinical strike that's either going to stop the heroes or allow the heroes to get that foot in the door so we've gone for descent and the fifth of the categories was teamwork now for me i think there can only be one winner it's got to be the cooperative set of games and that's the ravenloft series Each character has got their own skills and weaknesses and when you get into a party of decent size you have to do different roles for each other, watch each other, react to what's happening that's going on and you have to work as a team. I don't think the co-op element is the strongest of any co-op game I've played but it's certainly there and for me, from these games, teamwork, the Ravenloft series. Sean? I very nearly went for the Ravenloft series but I think for different reasons I really enjoy the teamwork aspect in a four player game of Conquest of Nerath I think you really really have to work in tandem with each other and you have to understand what each other is doing and if you don't work together somebody's just going to get completely overrun and get bullied in the game so it's a really interesting aspect of that game for me and it's something I'd like to explore a lot more so my choice is Nerath and for the non-D&D license game we This was an easy choice, actually. We both went for it straight away. It's a fantasy cooperative game, which is quite tricky and therefore requires teamwork. It's Defenders of the Realm. And in Defenders of the Realm, the players are all playing these characters who are defending the central capital city of the land. And there are four enemy generals who are advancing across the board from the four corners. And they're attempting to get to the capital in order to conquer it and wipe out your nation. It's tough. It's very thematic. It's... Like Pandemic, with theme and challenge and lots of dice and more random stuff going on, it's a real fun game. We both enjoyed it, and it definitely, definitely have to work as a team in order to succeed at Defenders of the Realm. So, on to Fighting Monsters. Now, for me, nothing quite does Fighting Monsters the dungeon command the way you are pitting wonderful monsters and famous monsters against other famous monsters is one of the few games that allows you to just be the baddie in everything you're doing and fling these behemoths at each other so for me dungeon command wins it's our agreement one isn't it yeah dungeon command easy each of the factions have got a variety of units You'll recognise them, you recognise the way they play, it's very clever the way they've made them play within the gaming system, and it's a clear winner. In terms of fighting monsters, this could be the strongest winner in any of the categories, it's got to be Dungeon Command. And the non-D&D game we've gone for is Thunderstone. Thunderstone is all about gathering a party together and going in and attacking a monster. It's the whole basis of the game. There's a real wide variety of monsters in there. And we both like a deck building game. So Thunderstone was an easy choice for us, really. Yes, but only if you play it with the epic variant. Yes, I was was leaving that (laughs) for you. (laughs) Okay, and the last category we had was world immersion how well do any of these games create a world for you to delve into and back to me struggling this is the fourth of the seven categories where in terms of the D games themselves i couldn't really fit one in very well 
but just because of how clever the different factions are and how much you do think you are within the setting that it gives you, I have gone for Dungeon Command. For me, there isn't really one that sticks its head above the above the trenches here. I think the one that I ruled out straight away was Lords of Waterdeep because it has got a bit of a tacked on theme. But the other four, I think, all have their merits in terms of that world immersion. I do think Nerath do feel like you're a commander in this battle. Ravenloft, you kind of do get the feeling that you're mooching around these dungeons and dungeon to a degree as well. And Dungeon Command, and you do kind of feel like you are taking the role of that faction leader. So I'm going to say, to be honest, four games, Nerath, Ravenloft, Dungeon Command, and dungeon and the non-dnd license game we went for now this might be controversial i'm sure some people are going to shout me about this i went for middle earth quest it's set in middle earth obviously uh, tolkien's world of the lord of the rings and the hobbit and what have you it's set between the hobbit and lord of the rings so people sometimes complain that the main characters in it that you play as apart from the one player who's playing a sauron the heroes are not famous characters from the book but you get to interact with those characters they do come into the game Gandalf and Boromir and Legolas and all the rest of them and for me possibly as a personal thing and for Sean as well we're so used to that setting that when you're in Mordor or when you're fighting over Minas Tirith or when someone puts you in Mirkwood you know where you are you know exactly what the setting is you know why there's spiders in Mirkwood you know why you're getting sent and it's it's hard work to go through Dol Guldur you know exactly what these places are and I think that that it's a really successful adventure quest game where it's many against one and it really creates the theme of being in that world. So my world immersion choice and Sean's world immersion choice, non-D&D, is Middle Earth Quest. So this is where the pit fight aspect of the show actually comes in in its full force. And now what we're going to do is we're not going to talk about the games, especially from our seven sort of what we desire most from Dungeons and Dragons games. And we're not going to even talk about them as Dungeons and Dragons games, but we're going to rate them as board games. So with five points for our favorite game and down to one point for our least favorite game starting with that one that's what we're going to do now ronan what's your least favorite and therefore one point game i think it's not a bad game i was surprised how good it was for what it was but there is one game that's clearly below the others in terms of standard and it's still perfectly serviceable but it's got to be dungeon showing its age a little bit now at almost 40 years old it's, it's a tough one for Dungeon to really come out anywhere close to being on top because it is a little bit dated. It's a perfectly good game. It doesn't outstay its welcome. It plays really quickly, but it's up against some truly, truly, in my opinion, tough competition. So Dungeon's going to get my one point. So moving on, my number four game out of these, and this is where it really gets tough. And it's a game I really enjoy. I've had some fantastic games of it, but it doesn't always work. Depending upon you know how the game goes, it can fall flat on the odd occasion. So I've had to go number four. I'm sorry, it's Conquest of Nerath. I had a definite first, which you'll, you'll find out in due course. But then I had three games, and over the course of my doing the research for this, I think I've changed them 50 times. They're so close together, but... 
I'm agreeing with Ronan again, and it, it hurts me to say it because I've had some wonderful games of this, but I have had some games that aren't quite as wonderful. So yeah, Nerath is going to have to get my my two points. I've got a horrible feeling about how this is going, Sean. <laughs> I feel like the next one might be an agreement and then we're going to swap places for the last two, but we'll see, we'll see. Let's not ruin the surprise. Number three for me and getting three points. Again, fun, but in terms of a dungeon crawler, not the best dungeon crawler I have ever played, although slightly different from most of them. And again, a really good game and experience, but it's got to be the Ravenloft series. I think your prediction has not borne fruit. <gasps> oh no! For me, there was times when it was was my second favourite, but my my three points are going to go to Lords of Waterdeep. I I can't believe you're going to go to sleep tonight in your bed. <laughs> it's one of my wife's favourite games, by the way, and she is at this very moment glaring at me. And you deserve to be glared at. Okay, I do. I do. <laughs> Right, so moving on, second favourite of the Dungeons and Dragons game, and for me, it's probably the surprise one. It's probably the least known of them, and the one that's flown under the radar. It's Dungeon Command. It's a fantastic game, very thematic, really challenging. Like Sean said, it always seems to end up being a close game, and every different faction is is a delight to explore. So, Dungeon Command, my number two D and D game. Well, my number two is got to be Castle Ravenloft. It has its flaws. I do bear in mind what Rona says, there isn't the most exciting dungeon to explore in terms of the the aesthetics of it. But I just I do enjoy the game. I think it's one of the more thematic games for me and it does make me feel like I'm in a, a Dungeons and Dragons game as i said very stripped down and very light and it but it does make me feel like i'm in strad's dungeon and for that reason alone the world immersion side i'm going to give it my four points so i guess that makes our number one choices fairly obvious but we'll go through them anyway my number one of five points is lords of waterdeep Hard pressed to think of a better worker placement game that you can play in 45 to 60 minutes. I'm sure there's some out there people are going to shout, but for me, I think the theme does add to it. I think the expansion that just came out turns it into a slightly different game. I'm not sure I like it as much with the expansion, actually, because I'm not sure that the extra time is worth what you get from it. But in terms of the base game itself, Really enjoyable, fun, gateway game that I've played numerous times and will carry on enjoying playing. And my favourite and my five points goes to Dungeon Command. I think it's a really well-produced game. The miniatures are stunning. It is thematic. And I've never, ever, ever had a bad game of this. Every game has come down to a nail-bite in Finale and... I really, truly enjoy playing this game. It's one of my favourite games of all time, not just in the Dungeons & Dragons range. So just to recap, fifth place was Dungeon. Fourth place was Nerath, which is a surprise. Third place was Castle Ravenloft. In second place was Lords of Waterdeep. And our surprise winner of this episode of Pit Fight is Dungeon Command. Dungeon Command is a great game and a worthy winner. But we've been very careful in how we've worded things there, Sean, because we started off trying to find the best D&D board game. But I don't think we found it in these five, did we? I think we found some very good games within themselves, but none of them got close to fulfilling 
what we look for within a D&D game. So we kind of have done the special Lifetime Achievement Prize here, and both of us are going to nominate our best non-D&D D&D game so that the, the pit fight has got something to, to go for if you're looking for a good D&D game. Sean, do you want to tell us what your best non-D&D D&D game is? Yeah, just before I mention it, when we were going through the seven aspects that we would like to see in all Dungeons and Dragons and our favourite aspects, it just staggered me how many of these games didn't match up at all. And we really had to crowbar some of them in. And one one aspect, I I couldn't actually think of a game. Yeah, Ronan's absolutely right. These games really don't live up to what we expect of a Dungeons & Dragons game. And for me, I think the one that really does is Descent. It has that world immersion. It has character development. It has the fun of dice rolling. You've got killing monsters in there. There's teamwork because you you are a team of adventurers taking on the one overlord and you've got a developing story it's got everything i would want in a D game and i'm so shocked that the D games don't have all of them when i was thinking about this it really came down to choice of three and descent was right up there the other honorable mention i'm gonna be cheeky here so i was gonna choose one two three but was mage knight which is a game which i didn't take to first of all but now a few plays in i'm starting to get my head around a bit more and see the possibilities but the winner for me in terms of best non D and D game, it's as close to a D and D game as you can get, really, because it, the license is based on D and D, and it's the Pathfinder adventure card game. It's the game in which you are going through role playing scenarios, you are developing as a party, you have to work together, you're getting all that special equipment, you're fighting monsters, you're discovering new locations. It ticks pretty much every box going out there. It is a role playing system in way less of the time and way less of the time sink although i have now bought all the packs that have been out so far we're halfway through the first six pack cycle so perhaps that time sink aspect is going out the window but for me the best D game even though it's not officially licensed has got to be the pathfinder adventure card game so We've nominated a couple of games there, and we've chosen our favourite of those five games, but like we said, we haven't found a definitive Dungeons & Dragons game. When you look at the five games we covered, in all the descriptions we said they are something light. The dungeon is, I mean, extremely like Dungeon Crawler. Narath is a light war game. Ravenloft is a stripped-down cooperative dungeon crawl system. Dungeon Command is a minis tactical game, light, and Lords of Waterdeep is a Euro light game. So I think there's a definite direction in which Wizards of the Coast are going with regards to these releases. They don't seem to be taking on the deeper hobby games, but more games to introduce people into hobby games mechanisms. Now, they are all really, really good games, but they're not intrinsically, for us, Dungeons and Dragons games. But then when you look about it and you look at the things we mentioned at the beginning of the episode about what meant D&D to us, a lot of those are not actually intrinsically Dungeons & Dragons things. Would Baldur's Gate still be a good computer game if it didn't have a D&D license? Would Dragonlance still be the set of novels that we enjoyed as children or as teenagers without a D&D license? Would I have played as much Warriors of the Eternal Sun when I was at school? Yes, I would. But D&D itself, it represents something a bit more nebulous. It's I think slightly different to everyone and it hasn't been tied down that could possibly be the strength to it it's why we're able to say things like pathfinder and descent 
are just as valid as Dungeons and Dragons games because it gives what we expect for Dungeons and Dragons from our experience. It's so an all-encompassing brand now that everyone has got different expectations from it. Now, we're looking for a D&D game and some of the responses you get when you're talking about that is people say, you can't expect to get a role-playing game experience in one or two hours in a board game. But actually, other publishers have shown to Wizards of the Coast, you can. We've just gone through a number of those games and all of them gave us more of a D&D feel than the five games with the official license. So, are Wizards going to make that step and try and take it on and give us the definitive Dungeons & Dragons game? They did try before. They've released loads of different games, including the adventure game and miniature games and what have you. Will they try and do that again? And in terms of these Dungeons & Dragons games that have come out, they do entice a certain market to take them on and play them. But also, it seems to be within the hobby market that they exclude a large portion just because they are Dungeons & Dragons games. But why? Why are people getting upset with Lords of Waterdeep just because it's got a D&D theme? Or why are people not going through Dungeon Command because it's got D&D on the box? Is it because they have certain expectations and they haven't been met? Do you think maybe if Wizards of the Coast brought out a killer, amazing D&D game, then the other games they brought out would not be judged so harshly? Are we just sitting and waiting? Give us this perfect D&D game and then we'll forgive you all other ills. They've brought out five really nice games. They've increased exposure to our hobby by doing so. And they've made a success of pretty much all those games. This new wave that we've looked at over the last couple of years of these games, it's been a good thing. But what we're waiting for is the real jewel in the crown. And we're still sitting here awaiting the definitive Dungeons & Dragons board game. So, there we have it. We've got a pit fight winner, and we've also got a a non-pit fight winner, and ending up on a little rant from Ronan. What more could you ask from the podcast? Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Dungeons & Dragons games and fantasy games in general, and whether you agreed or disagreed with what we came up with today. You can catch us on Facebook, The Game Pit Podcast, on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. You can email us your thoughts at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. We are members of the Dice Tower Network alongside a ton of other great gaming podcasts. Also, you can find all our episodes on 2d6.org where you will find written, video and audio gaming content galore. Join us next time on The Game Pit. Music by Eat Power. Thank you.